From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, November 5th. I'm Aaron Schachter in Boston. And from London, I'm Marco Werman. The candidates make their final pitches. And the rest of the planet is watching closely. America still has that leader of the free world title. It's not completely tarnished yet. One place where America's influence has declined is Africa. China's doing more business there, so for Africans... The transfer of power that's taking place in China in December is actually going to be more important than the transfer of power that will take place, if it does take place, in the United States in January. And Marco's back after the news. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There's just one more night until Election Day. I'm here in London, a city that people from all over the world have made their home. Many of them are planning to stay up late and watch the returns tomorrow, including here in Brixton, one of London's most diverse neighborhoods. It's exciting people this hard as well, seeing what happens, whether they can make it, Obama can make another term. Yeah, I will watch it and I, will know, I want to know what will happen, yeah. The American election is very important for the rest of the world as well, and I really hope Obama will stay. It looks like America is running the world, so... Yeah, I'm interested. Yeah, I, I would watch it, yes, I will, yes, yes. Elections are important, aren't it? <laughs> I hope, uh, what's his name, the black man? I hope he get back in. Tuesday's the day. I'll be watching TV, saying at home, yeah. London voices from Afghanistan, Sweden, Angola, Guyana, and of course the UK. You know, this may be an American election, but the rest of the world is watching. And if you think everyone here is a huge fan of the current president, well, think again. He hasn't done enough. I mean, if he's the most powerful person in the world, then he should be able to solve, you know, some of the most important issues and which creates a lot of conflict and chaos. That's Aki Nawaz, a British musician. His parents came here from Pakistan. He leads a group called Fundamental. Their track, Cookbook DIY, released in 2006, was a tongue-in-cheek but highly provocative rap tune about bomb-making. Unpacked up ingredients, stacked up my laptop, downloaded that military cookbook PDF, elements, everyday chemicals at my reach. Nawaz has big problems with the idea of the American president being all-powerful. When president of... USA is presented, oh, this is the most powerful person in the world. I find it deeply offensive for, not just for myself, but for everybody, that here we're told that this person is the most powerful in the world and can do anything and dictate anything. I find it absolutely amazing that we allow this soundbite. I don't think it probably affects people in the West, when I'm talking about Northern Europe, as much as people outside in Africa or in Asia. Or I think that they find it, find it far more offensive. 
in Pakistan, for example, anger at American presidential power is intense, and it's focused on the use of unmanned aircraft, drones, to target militants in places such as Waziristan in northwest Pakistan. It's a policy that was started by President George W. Bush, expanded by Barack Obama, and supported by Mitt Romney. We contacted Shahzad Akbar, a human rights lawyer based in Islamabad. What people in areas like Waziristan, what they believe of American president is, I'm really sorry to say that people actually believe that person who becomes American president is not a good person because that person has no respect for human life. Because these people are talking in the presidential debate about killing other human beings without any due process. Akbar represents people who say they're not militants but have been caught up in those U.S. drone strikes. When they listen to the president saying that we are going to escalate drone strikes, just imagine how does it make people feel who are on the receiving end because they are living under this constant fear that they might be the next target. And they see no difference between the militants or the American president for that matter because this is how militants terrorize the local community wherever they take over. And this is how the people in Waziristan are being terrorized by drones. Shahzad Akbar there, a human rights lawyer in Pakistan. He did say that people there get why drones are popular with American presidents and presidential candidates. Any military strategy that avoids putting American troops in harm's way is politically irresistible. But in other parts of the world, a U.S. president can be seen not as a villain, but as an out-and-out hero. From Cape Town, South Africa, here's the world's Anders Kelto. At the Siafambili Orphan Village in Cape Town, dozens of children sit in an open courtyard. They slide paper beads onto long pieces of string to make brightly colored necklaces and bracelets. And Dileka Nameni, the orphanage director, says most of these children are here because their parents died of AIDS. We have 288 kids that we are taking care of around this community. For years, Endileka and her staff struggled to feed and support such a large group. Then, they received a grant from the United States from a program started by President George W. Bush. Yeah, it, it, it changed our life, our, our lives. That American program has changed a lot of lives in Africa. The program is called PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. It was proposed by President Bush in his 2003 State of the Union address. This comprehensive plan will prevent 7 million new AIDS infections, treat at least 2 million people with life-extending drugs, and provide humane care for millions of people suffering from AIDS and for children orphaned by AIDS. At the time President Bush spoke those words, Many in the U.S. saw the AIDS epidemic in Africa as a tragedy that was too difficult and too expensive to tackle. But President Bush made this cause a personal crusade. With the help of Congress, he allocated billions of dollars to fight AIDS in Africa and changed the course of the epidemic. Dr. David Harrison, an HIV expert in Cape Town, says some elements of PEPFAR were controversial, particularly a requirement that sex education programs teach abstinence. But he says many South Africans viewed President Bush as a hero. He was regarded as somebody who had a heart when their own government was still choosing to ignore and and appeared to be so callous. But what about the next U.S. president, or the one after that? 
Do Africans believe that the person in the White House will continue to affect their lives in such a direct way? Michael Power, with the South African bank Investec, says no. Actually, the presidency uh, is not nearly uh, as important as, as people might think it is. Power says while American aid remains important in Africa, many countries see their economic future in trade. America used to dominate trade here, but Africa's largest trading partner is now China. Other countries, like India and Brazil, are also gaining ground. According to Power, some Africans are more interested in the meeting of China's Communist Party, which begins November 8th, than in the U.S. presidential election. And he says that's for good reason. The transfer of power that's taking place in China is actually going to be more important than the transfer of power that will take place, if it does take place, in the United States in January. Power says as African countries grow their economies through trade, and the U.S. considers cuts to foreign aid, the U.S. president could continue losing influence in Africa and Africans will continue turning their gaze to the east. That's the world's Anders Kelto in South Africa. Here in London, I met someone for whom all that makes a lot of sense, Aminata Forna. Her book, The Devil That Danced on the Water, is a memoir of her life as the daughter of a Scottish mother and a father from Sierra Leone. In fact, she grew up in the West African country. And that idea at the end of Anders' story, that people on the African continent might be looking beyond the U.S. presidency to other leadership, she's heard that before. It reminds me of a conversation I had with my cousin. I go back to Sierra Leone once or twice a year. I usually ask him. He's my sounding board of what's going on there. He's a thoughtful, intelligent man. We'd had elections, and I said to him, can you see a difference? Are things getting better? Or are things the same? Or are things getting worse? And he said, well, I mean, I think they're getting better. And this is the first time he'd ever said this, so I said, why is that? And he said, well, because the government's governing. And it was almost the first time in our lives the government had actually governed, actually done things. Now, I think what happens when any African I've spoken to, a taxi driver or a middle-class professional, thinks when they look at the presidency of the United States and why they probably don't see it as much more than symbolic as compared, say, to the leaders of China, of Russia, of even India or Brazil, is they see a president who is so enmeshed in the politics of governance that he is hamstrung, that he can't actually govern. And I think they see that because they know it, because it reflects something that they are quite used to, which is a political process in their own countries, which is so factionalised and so divisive that... Even if they support a particular president, I'm not sure they have that much faith in his ability to really affect change. Hi. Hello. Gregory? Yes, it is. Hi, Marco. Very nice to meet you, Marco. Very nice to meet you, too. I met another writer, novelist Gregory Normanton, at the London Wetland Centre, a haven for birds and other wildlife not far from the centre of town. Airplanes from Heathrow Airport flew in overhead as we made our way to a duck blind overlooking the marsh. From here on, this is wild country. These are wild birds that have flown here of their own accord. On the way, Normanton talked about political gridlock in the U.S. and about the omission of one huge topic from the campaign, climate change, climate silence, as he put it. Well, the climate science is much more debated than uh, the science actually warrants. And uh, that debate, of course, is one of the reasons why there is the silence, because there doesn't seem to be a sense of urgency yet. And I would argue there isn't a sense of urgency because the people who should be leading on this issue uh, have not really had the courage to do that. 
A few years back, Gregory Normanton took part in the international writing program at the University of Iowa, and he says he kind of received his environmental education in the U.S. from his peers and from historical figures, such as the Scottish-born American naturalist John Muir. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned John Muir because John Muir, of course, famously stood for a photograph with one of the great Republican presidents, Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt pretty much established the national park system, not just in the states, but by example, the rest of the world started following the American model. Much more recently, on things that are less easy to get our heads around, like climate change. After all, the emissions of the gases that trap the heat in our atmosphere that causes extreme climate change are not really visible to us on a day-to-day basis. We've seen really the White House, under all administrations, absolutely withdraw from its responsibilities on that issue, and I think that's had as negative an effect. On the climate crisis and political will to tackle it internationally, as say Theodore Roosevelt's example had on the national parks movement. From the U.S. presidency, what kind of leadership do you expect, Gregory? There's a lot of frustration there, but it's a paradox because there are some people who don't like manifestations of American power. I'm one of those, like a lot of people, left or right in Britain, who really want America to lead. I don't want them to get out of the way. Look, I'll give you an example. The famous song "Democracy" by Leonard Cohen. He talks about America being the cradle of the best and the worst.、Uh, when it came to World War II, America saved civilization from catastrophe. The Marshall Plan, at least for Western Europe, saved us from catastrophe. When it came to the Montreal Treaty on the ozone,、uh, because America was leading, the rest of the world followed. America still has that leader of the free world title. It, it's not completely tarnished yet,、uh, and people want that inspiring example.、Uh, but that was the best, effectively, that we saw. But when it comes to climate change, it seems to me that what we're seeing is the ascendancy of the worst in America. Gregory Normanton, climate change activist and novelist. If you want to see Normanton and all the people I've been speaking with in London, I've been shooting their portraits all week. You can see the slideshow at theworld.org/elections. Later in the program today, some kids here in London dream big and tell us what they would do if they became president of the United States. Back to Aaron Schachter in Boston after the break. From me, Marco Werman in London. This is PRI Public Radio International. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is the world. In New York and New Jersey, piecing back together the communities devastated by Hurricane Sandy will be a daunting task. And who will do the hard work? History suggests immigrants are likely to play a major role. Immigrant labor made a major contribution to rebuilding New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and estimates suggest that one out of five construction workers in the U.S. today is an undocumented immigrant. Patrick Vink is a researcher at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. He's the author of a study that examined the role of immigrant labor in post-Katrina reconstruction. Vink says it's likely a fairly similar story will play out post-Sandy. Immigrants will be a big part of that workforce,、uh, especially for the、uh, difficult task of cleaning up, which are low-wage, low-skill work that、uh, typically is the market for migrant worker. Now, one of the things that your、uh, survey focused on was the hazards that、uh, 
undocumented workers faced in post-Katrina New Orleans. What might um, the immigrants expect if history is any guide uh, now with Sandy? Well, let's hope that uh, history is not not a guide and we can already see that the response to uh, Sandy has been much faster and much more effective than what we saw after Hurricane Katrina, where people were stranded for weeks and, and help took um, uh, several days before arriving in, the, in, in New Orleans and other affected area. So the dynamic there is a, little, uh, is a little different. That being said, we also have to see what will be done in terms of the uh, labor requirement uh, in, in the aftermath of uh, Katrina. The, the government dropped the requirement to uh, pay minimum wage, for example, dropped also the requirement for companies to prove the status of the worker that would work for them. That has not been the case so far. And the hazards that uh, the immigrants might face? There are a number of uh, hazards that the worker will face. The uh, mold that might develop as uh, the lack of electricity and water has been standing, hazards related to the cleanup itself, um, moving debris and large amount of uh, materials that um, are dangerous in themselves, but also in, in conditions where they're unstable. And most importantly, having no protective gear for most of that work. One of the things that we saw in New Orleans is that on, on one hand, those workers had uh, no way to uh, seek help if they were working in unsafe conditions, and they had no way of asking for protection for the work that they were supposed to do from from the contractors. So they are in a very, very difficult situation. But as you say, the U.S. Department of Labor hasn't changed any of the rules this time around, at least not yet. So far, we haven't seen any of the rules uh, change. That being said, immigration enforcement is is still there, and that very often prevents uh, undocumented worker from seeking help, uh, from demanding that they work in safe conditions. So they will be working in in uh, challenging environments, regardless of uh, the, the requirement from the uh, the federal government. By and large, we can expect better conditions than what happened after Katrina for a range of reasons. I mean, we, we learned a lot from Katrina. The response has been much faster, much better, and we can imagine that the working conditions will be better, but there will be abuses. There's no question about that. Patrick Vink, is there a particular story you remember from your study of New Orleans that jumped out at you? I think it's the uh, the conditions in which the worker were um, living in the city. I mean, one, they were assembling at pickup sites and people would just, or contractor would just go there and, and hire a number of people, but they were sleeping in tents under bridges. They were sleeping in places where there was no electricity. They were sleeping in places where water had been standing in, in very, very unsafe conditions. So these are the people who rebuild the city in, in Katrina and, and we owe them a, a lot. So... Uh, we just would like to see that um, their efforts and their work will be better rewarded in the case of Sandy. Patrick Vink is a researcher at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. He studied the contribution of the immigrant workforce in rebuilding New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Mr. Vink, thank you. Thank you. The devastation that Sandy brought to New York and New Jersey has been documented in many dramatic photographs. One of the most iconic was taken by Iwan Bon. He's an award-winning Dutch photographer who normally snaps pictures of architectural masterpieces. Last week, he happened to be in New York when Sandy hit. After the storm passed, he boarded a helicopter to take pictures of the stricken city from above. The result was a stunning photograph of a half-lit, half-dark Manhattan. Bon explains how the shot ended up on the cover of New York magazine. I was in New York, and 
my hotel where I'm usually staying in downtown was also out of power. So I was on my way to the airport when I got this call from New York magazine and uh, went to a helicopter place. And the helicopter wasn't that difficult. So it was easier to get a helicopter in Manhattan than a car at the time. Yeah. <laughs> can, can you describe for us what you saw from up there in the helicopter? Um, the first part of Manhattan completely blacked out and then behind it from Times Square on uh, up north, fully alive and a thriving city. It was really two different cities we were looking at. And at night it's, of course, difficult. It's pitch black and especially at the moment when there was no power in Manhattan and you're shooting from a moving, vibrating helicopter. And usually over New York you can only fly a height of 2,000 feet, but there was basically no air traffic those first days. So air traffic control let us basically do anything we we want. So we went up to like 5,000 feet where we finally took the picture from. And and what went through your mind when you saw New York half dark and, and half light like that? It, it was fascinating to see that the rise of the sea level by a couple of feet like that would stop a city like that uh, for such a long time. Like I'm from Holland and we sort of dealt with the water for a long time. Of course, we built the dikes and everything. But it's kind of shocking to see that it could happen to Manhattan. Iwan Bon is an award-winning Dutch photographer. He joined us from another assignment in Haiti. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You can see that photograph of the half-lit, half-dark Manhattan taken for the cover of New York Magazine. It's at our website, theworld.org. For today's GeoQuiz, we take to the ice. With the National Hockey League in a labor dispute, some locked-out NHL players have been getting together to practice. But a shortage of hockey goalies in Toronto has meant some local amateur players have had to step up. I just said, you know, hi, how you doing? And uh, I'm here to stop pucks for you guys. So we went out on the ice, and uh, I couldn't believe how fast and hard these guys shoot. We'll hear more from this part-time goalie. First, we want you to name the home arena of the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's had to get creative to fill the time usually taken by NHL hockey games. Its lineup features little or no hockey, but plenty of entertainment from the likes of Aerosmith and a holiday show called The Big Jingle. So can you name this hockey-slash-entertainment complex? Here's a hint. It's named after Canada's largest airline. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead, an American writer in Britain dismayed by the tribal politics back home. If you go to a party in in the New York area, you know they're all going to be Democrats. And if you open your mouth and say something that seems faintly Republican, you shock everyone and they will physically pull away from you. 
ERIs, the world is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. This week, we get word on who will be the next leader of the United States and the next leaders of China. The relationship between the two countries is one of the most important in the world, so Chinese citizens are watching the U.S. elections, but with varying degrees of interest. The World's Mary Kay Magstad reports from Beijing. In a country where politics used to saturate and sometimes destroy people's lives, there's a certain luxury to being able to be politically apathetic. Ms. Lee, who runs a vegetable stand in my neighborhood, embraces that. Do you think it matters to you who the U.S. president is? Not really, she says. I don't watch the news. I don't care about it. And does it matter to you who the Chinese leaders (laughs) She rolls her eyes in exasperation and says, Don't ask me this, friend. I never watch the news. I'm busy with this job. You should interview those who have nothing to do. They watch the news. Just down the lane from her stall, there's a small group of shop owners. They're more opinionated, and they're happy to share. <laughs> a middle-aged guy named Kong Desan says America should choose a leader who's pro-China. He grumbles that America's weak economy is bad for China. And, he says, the U.S. beefing up its presence in the Asia-Pacific region is clearly meant to contain China. I ask what U.S. president he thinks would be best for China. He says, the one who met Zhou Enlai, who was that? Nixon. Since time travel isn't an option, I press on in search of other opinions and meet 28-year-old Zhang Li Bo, a guard at the Australian embassy. He says the U.S. election is important to him. Because the U.S. is a so powerful country, and it will affect the world, I think, especially to China. I asked Zhang what he thinks of what Obama has done in office. He says he did some good things in relation to China, but he needs to know more about how the Chinese people think. As for Zhang's opinions on Mitt Romney? I don't know much about him because we always read some speeches about Obama, not... Romney. <laughs> yeah, Romney. But Zhang does know what he'd like to see the next U.S. president do, be more sensitive to Chinese feelings about the Jiaoyu or Senkaku Islands, which are claimed by both China and Japan. The dispute has grown heated in recent weeks, with Chinese naval ships entering the area and the U.S. warning it would defend Japan if a conflict breaks out. High school student Sun Yan, who's participated in the Model United Nations, says he hopes the next U.S. president is committed to a peaceful relationship with China. He says, I believe the Chinese government and Chinese people want peace. We will not seek military expansion. I hope the U.S. president will change his opinion about China. Swan isn't very impressed with President Obama's record in office. What did he do, he asks? Some health care reform? But the economic reforms haven't been very effective. The new president should improve the economy first. 
But Zhang, the embassy guard, is rooting for Barack Obama. I ask what he'd like Obama to do differently if he's reelected. I think he needed to come to China again and again, <laughs> and、uh, know how Chinese think. At least some Chinese people will be watching the election returns to see if President Obama gets that chance. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. We're going to hear now from two people who are both outsiders and insiders when it comes to American politics and elections. One's a Briton who's lived here in the U.S. for years. The other's an American who now lives in Britain. Both are concerned about America's problems and its ability to fix them. Here's the world's Patrick Cox. Lionel Shriver is author of eleven novels, including "We Need to Talk About Kevin." She was born and raised in the U.S., but has lived away from it for much of her adult life. She says her annual trips home to New York have become a way of measuring America's decline. When she sees the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, what was once a serviceable highway is now completely rusted out. The repairs, she says, look as if they're made with plywood. And you see this all over the United States. I think that for visitors, it's quite a shock. Since I only go back every summer, I see the changes in、uh, juddering increments. Increments that, over time, have led Shriver to a stark conclusion. And the big picture is that the United States is failing and failing big time. There's plenty of evidence to support that impressionistic take. The Pentagon recently commissioned a report on the nation's defense industrial preparedness. That's the companies manufacturing the materials for the military. The Pentagon put a number on the most critical industries, 19. America led in all 19 in the early 1990s. It now leads in only four of those 19. This is Edward Luce, a Washington-based columnist with the Financial Times. He's written a book called "Time to Start Thinking: America and the Spectre of Decline." That was the original British title. Here in the U.S., the word "decline" has been replaced by the softer "descent." For the book, Luce spent time at the National Defense University, quizzing the kind of military people he says will be running the Pentagon in a decade. He describes them as panicked about the disappearance of America's manufacturing strength. They completely depart from the Republican Party orthodoxy by saying that the first thing we must do is withdraw from the world, is bring down our presence in the world, because military strength is based on economic strength, which means spending less, far less, on defence and more on education, infrastructure, rebuilding the domestic economy. That may or may not be a solution, but will such fundamental rethinking be adopted in Washington? Luce doesn't think so, and nor does Lionel Shriver. The country is simply too polarized. For someone like Shriver, who lives abroad, the gradual tribalization of political America into red and blue doesn't seem gradual at all. It seems sudden and difficult to reverse. She recalls going to a party outside New York on one of her recent trips back from Britain. And it was about oh seventy five people, and everyone agreed with everyone. I had a conversation or two in which I indicated that I supported the Conservative Party in the UK. That was the, of course, the wrong word. They didn't know anything about UK politics, and I made myself a pariah. Shriver came to realize that that experience wasn't a one off thing. This was typical. It is a complete political apartheid, and if you go to a party. In, in the New York area, you know they're all going to be Democrats, and if you open your mouth and say something that seems faintly Republican, even mildly pleasant, about the other side, you shock everyone, and they will physically pull away from you. 
which, writ large, isn't a great recipe for solving the country's problems. There's plenty of despair in Shriver's words, Luce's too, and it may be that they are chroniclers of America's decline. But they're also passionate chroniclers who believe that the country can yet learn from its missteps. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. And for more on the language of politics at home and abroad, you can listen to Patrick's podcast, The World in Words. Just go to theworld.org slash language. Back to Canada now to answer our geo-quiz. We were looking for the Air Canada Centre in Toronto, Ontario. That's where the Toronto Maple Leafs would be playing if there were a hockey season. The National Hockey League is in lockout mode because of a labour dispute between team owners and players. In the meantime, the Toronto Star reports that some Maple Leaf players have been trying to stay in shape by running their own training sessions. Problem is, there aren't enough goalies around to cover all the practices. So the NHL players have turned to part-time hockey players, even high school kids, to fill in. Toronto real estate agent Greg Parchenko has been filling in on goalie duties. Uh, Greg, so uh, are you a human target here or what? Yep, I'm the, I'm the pylon that they're shooting at. Tell us what it was like the first time you walked into the uh, locker room at a pro team. Well, first when I walked in... You know they're they're talking away. It's, it's a lot of uh, a lot of noise in the dressing room. I open the door, everything stops, and they all look at me like, "Who is this guy?" And I just said, "You know, hi, how you doing?" And uh, I'm here to stop pucks for you guys. So we went out on the ice, and uh, I couldn't believe how fast and hard these guys shoot. One of the one of the kids, he was just a junior. He almost took my glove off with one of his shots. Can you describe a recent workout that you went through? What's it like? They start, you know, they, they warm up, they skate around, they'll shoot. Different days, there's different coaches there working on different aspects of the game. A lot of stick handling, a lot of uh, touch passes, and a lot of shots. Right. There's a lot of shots. The breakaway drills have them just drilling them at you, don't they? Yeah, they're, you know what, I'm trying to get in the way of them, but they just keep going around me. It's It's tough. A lot of these guys have a ton of moves. Tyler Sagan, who's with Boston, a phenomenal hockey player. This guy uh, practices like he plays. He'll do six moves in front of me, and I'm I'm still, you know, going on the third move, going over to the net, and he's coming back already twice. So I said, Tyler, you know, give me a break. Only do five moves. <laughs> and does he listen to you? He goes, oh, next time I'll shoot. I go, oh, that's going to be a hell of a – you're, you're going to blow it by me. These guys are – they're incredible shooters, puck handlers, every one of them. Why is there this shortage of goalies? There's only about 60 goalies in the whole league. And when everybody's locked out, there's everybody's training in different areas. So, you know, somebody might be lucky enough to get a NHL goalie, but, you know, usually they train with their goalie coaches. Right. There are a lot of guys getting a chance to play against NHL players as goalie, including a 16-year-old kid, we understand, that must have been pretty nerve-wracking for him. He plays AAA in the, the GTHL, which is the highest league you can play in. He did really well, stopped a lot of shots, uh, came out a couple of times and missed a little bit of school, but <laughs> his dad was there and he did his dad proud. I imagine it's well worth it to miss school for this. Sure. <laughs> well, what's it like stepping up the game from um, pickup games to uh, on the ice with NHL players? Well, I'm still playing my pickup game, so <laughs> it goes from twice a week to like every day, and uh, I'm absolutely exhausted at the end of the week. 
I'm a little bit hockeyed out. You're a, you're a real estate agent, which is lucky, I guess, because you can take time off here and there to play with the NHL. But you getting any sales out of this? Uh, I actually I have. Uh, I, I helped one of the guys buy a uh, condo downtown. I hand out my card to everybody. So in the long run, I, I hope it pays off. So a little networking, a little hockey. That's it. I'm always working. It may not seem like it, especially uh, to my wife who says, what are you playing hockey again? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not just playing hockey. I'm, it's I'm business. Working. It's business. That's right. <laughs> so can you imagine as a kid being sick and tired of playing in the NHL, which is basically what you're saying. You're tired of it. It's too much hockey. As a kid, no, I couldn't. <laughs> you know, you you get older. I mean, the majority of goalies that have played in the NHL have stopped before they're 44, 45, and it's, it's a young man's game. Let alone 40-year-old real estate agents. That's right. Greg Porchenko, Canadian real estate agent and part-time NHL hockey goalie, thank you so much. All right, we'll talk to you. A note now on one of the most decorated TV shows of the year, the Showtime drama Homeland, that follows a CIA agent hot on the trail of a suspected Al-Qaeda-like mole. I missed something once before. I won't. It was ten years ago. Everyone missed something that day. Uh, everyone's not me. The show recently picked up four Emmys, including Best Drama and Best Writing, and its two top stars, Claire Danes and Damian Lewis, won Best Actress and Best Actor. Well, now the show is making waves for something else. Worst portrayal of Beirut, according to the Lebanese government. Tourism Minister Fadi Aboud says the government may sue the program for depicting Beirut's Hamra neighborhood as a hotbed of violence. He said the program does not portray the real image of Beirut, with its scenes of roaming militiamen and street fights. Oh, wait, that actually is Hamra in 2008. Back then, Shiite Hezbollah gunmen and Sunni militia members shot it out on the streets, occasionally with rocket-propelled grenades. Aboud says Hamra today is actually a lively neighborhood packed with cafes, bookshops, and pubs. That it is, but it's hard to argue that Beirut is violence-free when this was in the news recently. That's what a different neighborhood in Beirut sounded like last month after the car bomb assassination of a senior security officials. But the Lebanese might be especially incensed about the fact that Homeland's Beirut scenes aren't shot in Beirut at all, but in Haifa and Tel Aviv in Israel. That's pretty clear to anyone like me who's been to both places, since the architecture is totally different. Not to be outdone by their northern neighbors, Israelis are ticked off too. They're none too happy that two of their biggest cities might be mistaken for the Lebanese capital. As a viewer, I was a bit cranky, too, when I noticed the city identity switch. But for the sake of good television, can't we all just get along? This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. The damage inflicted by Sandy on New York and New Jersey extends to the voting booth. Officials in both states are doing their best to make sure voters in areas affected by the storm can cast their ballots tomorrow. That includes connecting voting machines to generators, moving several polling stations to unaffected locations, and in New Jersey, allowing people to vote via email. But for many still reeling from Sandy's aftermath, voting may not be the top priority. 29-year-old Lihia Soto was born in Guatemala and lives in Mastic Beach, New York. Soto's a U.S. citizen who works in the health care field. She says her decision to vote or not depends on her car and how much fuel is in the tank. 
here in Long Island, New York, it's very difficult to obtain gas. Um, I managed to go to different gas stations, and they ran out of gas. Finally, last night, after making two hours of a line, I was able to get $30 of gas, and I that's when I said, okay, I'm going to go boat. It was, at first, I wasn't sure I wasn't going to be able to make it. So you can actually boat now? Yes, I could. I can, yes. And I'm going to um, pick up my mother, and we're going to go together. <laughs> Now, I, I imagine uh, you're one of the lucky ones. It must be hard for a lot of people to go vote. It is. Uh, for instance, my father, he commutes about an hour for work, and he actually mentioned to me yesterday that if he didn't find gas, that most likely he wasn't going to go vote. And have you heard that from a lot of people? A couple of friends in the area, still to the gas, and you know, trying to save. For me, it's actually to go to the voting poll. It's not like it's on my way to work. It's about two or three miles from my house. This is a really interesting thought for those of us who haven't experienced a shortage like this, the decision making that you have to you have to think about. Do I have enough gas to get to work? Uh, do I have enough gas to get to the poll? I mean, I, I imagine there may be quite a few people who don't vote because they can't drive there. Yeah, and the lines for obtaining gasoline, it's huge. It's like three to four blocks. And you have to come with cash? Cash only, yes. Is it possible in, in the neighborhoods there to walk to the polls? It's not like it's on the way to work for most people. Like, I'm speaking on my town in Mastic Beach. Uh-huh. We actually have to go look for the poll instead of the poll being on the way to work or on the way home. Right. Before the storm, I was so determined. I said, I'm definitely going to make my boat count. I'm going. And I was excited about it. And then once we got the storm, it was like, hmm, do I really want to spend that gasoline on going to vote, you know, with the gas shortage here in Long Island? I do wonder if it's living there in Long Island, if this is something that you notice is especially difficult for some of the newer immigrants to the United States. This kind of choice you have to make between getting to work in the car or getting to the polls. It could possibly do, especially right now that we're um, the fall. Most immigrants work in like agriculture or temporary work so that when it's raining or when the winter comes, they don't have enough hours of work. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, my father will be one of them. He works in asphalt. This season, he has less work and he has less money. He's from Guatemala too, yeah? Yes. 29-year-old Ligia Soto was born in Guatemala and lives in Mastic Beach, New York. She finally has gasoline, congratulations, and is headed to the polls tomorrow. Ligia, thank you. Thank you. One more look at presidential politics before we end the program today, but not the Barack and Mitt show. That can wait until tomorrow. Thanks to the BBC School Report Project, we have a group of kids from the Northumberland Park Community School in London. They're 12 and 13 years old, and we've asked all of them to dream a bit. So, please meet the newly elected presidents of the United States, Khaled, Lauren, Georgia, Yasser, Zubeda, and Dylan, with a little help from their chief of staff, the world's Alex Galifant. Dylan, I've got some very big news for you. Congratulations, you have been elected President of the United States. How do you feel? I feel quite proud that I was elected to be President. I feel there's going to be good points and bad points about you. Excited. I feel excited because I'm going to run a country and I'm going to make decisions that will benefit them in such a way that they will elect me 
in the next four years. Are you ready for the challenge? Yeah, I'm ready, but if people put pressure on me, which they will, I have to cope with it. Right, you just walked into the Oval Office, right? It's your first day on the job. Everyone's waiting for you to decide what to do next. But before you get on with your decisions, you see a piece of paper on the desk in the Oval Office, all right? You see the piece of paper? Yeah. All right. So on the top of the piece of paper, it says, the job of the U.S. president, brackets, your new job. What does it say on the piece of paper? Give out more jobs to people to make sure that they can afford a roof under their head. I should think about America first. Keep your promises. Work out all problems. To make sure that I'm making everyone happy in the country. Obviously, you can't make everyone happy, but just to make decisions that they'll be happy with. To work as hard as you can. It sounds pretty simple. And it also says um, you need to try um, to half the deficit to China and we have to also help countries which are in poverty now. So there's stuff on the list that's about America, but there's also stuff on the list that's about the rest of the world. Is that right? Yes, because many people are in need of help, which we could help with and we can make life change. But if I help a lot of countries, then the money will get wasted on countries that have not helped me. So then what I should do is save the money and let it build up until we can repay the debt and become a peaceful country. I would care about everyone, but not like take off this big responsibility saying everyone in the world has to be healthy and have money and they should have a car because that's going to be too much. Like, how, what, what could you do if you really wanted to, if you're the president? I could spend like a trillion dollars. Like, buy things that you don't even need. Like, I would buy, like, high-heeled shoes, which is, like, I don't even use high-heeled shoes. I would just buy it so I, so I can say, oh, yeah, I have this. Khaled, you might, you might be the weirdest president ever. No, Nixon is. Mm. So, hold on, is that, are you saying that's what you would do? You would no, buy high-heeled I, shoes? No, like, that would be, like, the most extreme thing, like, if I went mad. So what would you actually do? Probably buy, like, a million Bugatti Veyrons. It's like a million-dollar car. That's what I would actually literally do. Any final words to the American people? You know, as you're leaving office, you've been president for eight years, that's how you got re-elected. It's been a great time of being the president and serving this country, but I think it's my time. It's time to let someone else make new changes. So young, yet so presidential, except maybe for that car thing. You can see pictures of the budding commanders-in-chief at theworld.org. My colleague Marco Werman's smartphone in hand has been shooting some great pictures of what he's seeing in London for our Instagram stream. Find us at PRI The World. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter at World Aaron. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, the Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.